0: Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and today I'm in the studio with author Carrie Mullins. Carrie grew up in Mount Vernon, Kentucky, and still lives there today, and her debut novel, Night Garden, was released by Old Cove Press. Welcome to the studio, Carrie.
1: Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having me.
0: Let's just get started right away with the subject matter of Night Garden. It's gotten some great reviews, and it was a very anticipated novel, I think, at least among those of us here in Kentucky that knew it was happening and knew about the subject matter that I've talked to. But I do feel it's very important, and I'm really glad to see people starting to tackle it. The subject matter of Night Garden is where we're going to begin. And I want to tell our listeners first that this program will discuss drug abuse. So use your discretion if you're with young children, but you can use it as an opportunity for discussion as well. I want to begin by asking you why tackle such a hard topic just right out of the gate of drug abuse and addiction for a first publication?
1: Well, I wanted to tackle it because it was all around me, and it was something that I was seeing. It was something that was affecting the people in my community and the people that I grew up with, people who were younger than me in my county. It was just something that I felt really compelled to make. It's a fiction, of course. It's a a novel, but I wanted to make a kind of a record of what I was seeing around me and what was happening around me.
0: For a lot of us, I know there's a big stigma around talking about drug addiction, drug abuse. But I know, as you just said, it's something that is greatly affecting our communities. There's hardly a family that's not touched by it, yet it seems real taboo to talk about it. Where did the courage to write this novel come from?
1: I don't know that it was courage. I just wanted to write about it because it was having such an effect on my hometown and my county. I don't know how else to say it. It didn't feel courageous when I was doing it. I did feel totally compelled to do it and kind of obsessed with it. That's really where it came from.
0: I know when we deal with hard topics here at WMMT and we do our public affairs pieces, sometimes we find that reporting on things as a third party or telling another person's story and then sharing it with another audience opens the door for discussions that otherwise couldn't have happened. So as you've been doing the book tours and interviews and things like that and talking with people about your book, have you found it easier to have those types of discussions?
1: Yeah, and that's definitely something that at home some younger people have bought the book and I've been a little bit leery, because there is a whole lot of adult situations in there. I'm hoping that it'll just raise awareness and get people talking, like you said, just have a conversation in my community. It certainly has felt that way to me in Mount Vernon. I was really worried, honestly, when it came out. I was worried that people would be upset with the subject matter, but I've had a lot of people who said, you've written something that feels pretty true I think they've responded to that and that's been really gratifying to me as a writer and I'm hoping that it does get more conversation going.
0: Having it affect so many of us I think makes the topic a very important one to be able to talk openly about and to not be ashamed of what is happening. There are reasons for everything and I think learning the stories of how can someone come to that point? how. Does it happen? So I want to talk a little bit about the plot and the characters without giving too much away because I think it's really important, especially with this novel, for someone to experience it. So you wrote it from the point of view of 17-year-old Marie Massey, and she is from a family with some means for here in Appalachia. You show that very subtly, but we can tell. And I want to know, why did you feel it important to couch the story with her?
1: That's a good question. I think partly because I could maybe understand her a little bit more. I also love those writers like Richard Price and Charles Dickens, who write all different strata of social classes and different intersections of that kind of thing. And I've always thought that was really interesting to look at a problem from those different kind of angles. And so Marie, as a 17-year-old girl, I think that was the first thing that I had to figure out was the age and the kind of her background. And that was just kind of my way in to the story, I think, was through her and, and her family situation and her lifestyle.
0: I was watching a film that Herbie Smith made of Harriet Arnault here at Apple Shop a while back in the late 70s, I guess it was. And she said that when she wrote The Dollmaker that everybody started talking to her as if she were Gertie. (laughs) And uh, she said one man actually looked at her and he said, well, I thought you were going to be a big woman. (laughs) Because she's tiny. And she said, everybody thinks that it was autobiographical. And I think that is a lot of the assumption, especially with a novel that feels so real and is in the place where the author is from, whether it be a fictional town, but the same general location, people wonder how much of it is a lived experience. You know, as a writer, one of the things that I've always been told is write what you know and you'll do well. So how much of this is an observed piece and how much of it is a lived
1: I get that question especially from people who don't know me very well all the time and it is really funny. I would have to say it is mostly observed. I mean I've been lucky I haven't had to go down that path but like all teenagers that's the other thing that's interesting about Marie and being 17 years old is that those decisions you make when you're that age when your brain still isn't really fully formed and you can't always digest everything that's going on around you and you can't really make those decisions that you can make as an adult because your brain just hasn't formed all those pathways but yet at the same time when you're that age you can make decisions that will affect the rest of your life and impact your pathway and be pretty important for the rest of your life I think that's why a lot of people write about teenagers for that reason But yeah, it was mostly observed.
0: Well, I know from my personal experiences that so much of the imagery is very real. And I see coming from the teen perspective and having Marie being new to this whole world in that she's a teen and that she's being introduced to it by an adult and an adult that she's supposed to trust I can see that as a way to write something observed because she, too, is an observer. So that, to me, is an interesting thing. One of my biggest fears when we begin to start talking about this issue is that the people involved in the actual drug making or selling or very addicted that those people will somehow lose their humanity in not only fictional text but as we try to tell their stories from i guess a second party third party perspective that we'll forget that they too have a story that we're not all born to this despite you know what our families may feel and that's one particular thing that is true about the Owens family, who Marie gets involved with through her teacher, which to me also was an interesting choice. And I noticed I'm reading also David Joy's novel right now, Where All Light Tends to Go. And he's taken it from the family that is selling the drugs, their perspective, and their teen son, he's 18. So he's taken it kind of from the opposite end and talking about how one comes to that decision. But you both said, and you both have something in there, that the family has been participating in this type of activity for multiple generations. Do you think that that is true with the people who are perpetuating this issue of addiction, this issue of self-medicating, of outlaw money-making?
1: To some extent. Yeah, I do. Just because of my own experience, my own knowledge of some families, that's just their experience. I don't know that that culture is as widespread as it was at one time, but I think there's definitely a family component to addiction. Is it genetic? Maybe. Is it environmental? Maybe. It's probably a lot of factors. But I think there's definitely a familial component to a lot of it.
0: It starts with some dysfunction. And I I know some people in the area believe that along with a familial tie, a genetic tie, that there's also a really deep collective unconsciousness in this area of despair and desolation and loss of hope that is fueling this stuff because our real problems aren't being addressed and we've not seen any possible solutions and therefore we're kind of numbed to even thinking about them some people would argue do you think that that plays a part in how widespread because i've been shocked at times at who has gotten involved in this world and who has become addicted because their family, at least it wasn't known if they did.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it in our region, but it's heartbreaking is that Appalachia was on the cutting edge of this issue, but now it's really nationwide. I mean, if you look at rural areas in New Hampshire and Indiana, they're all facing the same horrifying scourge. We're really looking at a horrible heroin epidemic that's really just making its way to us I was looking at some statistics lately the county that I live in is Rock Castle County it's the 40th county in the nation at risk for hepatitis the spread of hepatitis and HIV because of intravenous drug use and that's pretty shocking a lot of the other counties are in Eastern Kentucky I think West Virginia has the highest spot for that it's coming. And I think it is more nationwide now.
0: With my generation, it seems to be that it's kind of started. And then with every generation below me, it seemed to get worse and worse and worse. But I have lost several friends to addiction, whether they're now in active addiction or they've passed away. And actually earlier this year, I lost an old friend to addiction. It doesn't matter if we leave here even because like you said it is a nationwide problem and there are a lot of things not being addressed in regards to it one of the statistics i heard was similar to this i'm not sure that i'm getting it exactly right but west virginia there was enough opioids allowed to come into the state that if every single person man woman child had a prescription for it they couldn't have consumed them all as prescribed and the fact that that kind of thing is allowed to happen in an area where they already know that there's a problem it's hard to think that there's not some kind of money or role behind that it's Mm -hmm. really hard not to believe that
1: yeah do you find though i think in, in my county at least people are finally talking about it and finally worried about it i think it's one of the top concerns health-wise of a lot of the people in my county at least. I don't know how we're going to address it. I really don't. But I think finally in 2016, I feel like people are at least talking about it and trying to figure it out. I don't know. Do you get that feeling?
0: I do, and I really think it's being spurred on by the Gen X generation Mm -hmm. and younger, the conversation. I think we've grown comfortable enough, unfortunately, with the fact that it's a real deal. And one of the things that Harriet Arnault also said in that interview was her mom had gotten on to her about writing about moonshiners. And she said, why are you writing about those people? And she looked at her mom and said, just because they run moonshine doesn't mean they're bad people. And I think whether it be religion, or social status, or what have you, I think that it makes us forget that just because someone's addicted, just because someone's selling their extra pills, that in and of itself does not make them a bad person. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're starting to talk about it more because it is our friends who are dying. It's our cousins. It's our family members. At that point, we have to do something or soon it will be our kids. I want to ask you the main male character the love interest for Marie and the I guess leader of the new trade the drug trade of the Owens family is Bobo Owens and when I first saw the name I was like hmm (laughs) but you explain why and it's a lovely explanation because I grew up next to a kid, and his name was Bubby, and it was on his birth certificate. That was his name. And, you know, at first you think, well, that's just... And then you realize there's a story with that, too. And I'm so glad you told the story, because <laughs> that totally, like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know. And I was relieved. But I want to talk about his dream, because he doesn't just get into this to do drugs or to sell drugs. He already has somewhat of a problem, but he's not someone who's just sitting around on his tail just trying to find a way to get drugs. He has a dream. So why did you give him a dream?
1: Well, you know, that family is a really entrepreneurial family when you think about it. They do have a lot of uh, business acumen, I guess. He saw that opportunity of having a outfitters down by the river and wanted to build that up and make it become something. And going back to his name and going back to what you said before, everybody who has these problems with addictions, they were a kid once, you know, and that's when he got that name is um, when he was a kid. But I wanted to show that too, people don't always intend to they never intend to become addicts or to for that to take over their lives. I can't imagine anybody that intends for that to be the course of their life. And like all of us, he had some dreams, and he was a, a real person. And I wanted him to come across that way.
0: I thought it was real interesting, too, what his dream was. It was a natural fit. He was good in a boat in the water. He had fun doing it. People who did it with him enjoyed themselves. And also, it is going to be the people of his generation and younger. He's in his early 30s, right? Mm-hmm. Who start to build a new economy here. And the fact that so many people are now saying that we've lost a whole generation to drugs and we're about to lose another and thinking that these are the people we're depending on also to have these dreams and to be able to f- feel them out. And one of the sad things, and I think this is real for a lot of people, is that they don't see a solution without going through a back door. And for Bobo here, one way to get money to start his business was to cook math. That was what drove him was actually a wonderful dream, and I wonder, you know, what would it have been like him trying to get a loan when he deserves a fair chance? You know, I think about those of us who come from nothing now in this world that we've built with banks and all this capital and all this red tape that you have to go through. We can't just walk out of the coal mine and start a business like my grandfather did my great-grandfather to get himself out of the mine. That's what he did. He started at a flea market and then built himself a store with his own hands, with nothing. Mm -hmm. And you really can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not a thing. I guess seeing this trait, do you hope that this book also paints a picture for how we might need an uplift,
1: (laughs) a way out, solutions? Yeah. Yeah. And there is a part in the book where he goes to his grandmother and tries to get her to finance a legitimate part of his business operation. He wants her to give him some money so he can buy a van. And he tells her, you know, I've already been down to the car lot. The interest was just too much. I just couldn't do that. So I think there will have to be some alternative capital ideas going on. Because, like you said, it's not easy to go <laughs> get a loan if you've never, if you haven't established your business. If you're a entrepreneur... You know, like he was trying to start out in something that hasn't succeeded there at all. There's never been anything like that in the county. Yeah, he may have been a little too ahead of his time, or <laughs> just not. They may just not have been ready for that. And that's the other thing too. Him relying on the illicit, illegal part—that is kind of falling back on his family history and, and what he's seen succeed for them too. So many people judge
0: those who are addicted and those who even sell drugs in the area saying things like they're ignorant or they came from no good families or they're stupid even (laughs) and that they just have no hope from the very beginning. What I think really works in this novel is that you show that these are not ignorant people whatsoever. They have established themselves a family home place. Their grandmother has a business, <laughs> if you want to call it such, and is able to provide what she can for her family. Nikki is employed, and the cousin that introduces Marie to the family is a school teacher. So you're showing, I think, really well, that it doesn't have discrimination behind it it can hit anyone in any family it doesn't have anything to do with
1: intelligence
0: or socioeconomic status
1: no it doesn't and as you know it has cut across all walks of life marie gets involved in a way to
0: deal with grief one of the things that i noticed. Across the board, too, with everyone in the situation, they lacked resources to properly deal with anything that they had. Even Marie's parents, being of means, lacked the resources because they're just not there. One of the things that I've been looking at is the fact that there are so few opportunities to address mental health here in Appalachia. And I definitely believe that a lot of our problems with addiction stems from having to keep pushing ourselves while we're also experiencing grief or some other form of strong emotion that is just not being addressed. Because people do say things to us like, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps or don't let anybody see you cry. You've got to provide for those kids. You've got to get up in the morning and go to work. And having no resources but your own will, you know, eventually that's going to cave.
1: Yeah, that's very worrying on anybody. And I think the mental health is such an important component, not only of Marie's story, her family's story, even the Owens' story, really. I just think it's inseparable from everything that we're talking about, from treatment to dealing, like you said, with grief and other issues that exacerbate that need or the addiction issue. And I think that's another thing that we're gonna have to work on in our area.
0: Building something from nothing. I keep coming back to that because it seems like that's what we've always been expected to do. Then told, hey, you can do better, try this, And then again we're left to build something from nothing in regards to mainstream living standards. Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT, real stories, real news, real people radio, brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. The electoral map of Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia is a sea of red with few islands of blue. Of the 263 counties in the three states, only nine went for Hillary Clinton. Now that Donald Trump is the president-elect, what do his supporters in the region want him to do? Jeff Young reports on what voters and voting data tells us about what motivated the Trump vote.
2: Ohio Valley Resource reporters asked Trump voters what they hope he will do as president. More than Obama did. we need jobs. I don't think Trump is some savior. He's not a savior, but he is somebody with a different perspective. And I'm gonna hold my
3: breath and keep my fingers crossed and hope that he can affect some real change in this country.
2: We also asked some questions of the data, how county by county vote results match up with some key economic information about the region. The results offer some insights and raise some questions about what motivated Trump voters here. One obvious factor, anxiety over coal's collapse. Here are eastern Kentucky Trump supporters Judy Collier and David Boggs. I mean, we need jobs. Our coal jobs are gone here in eastern
3: Kentucky. We'll put the coal business back together and put, straighten this country up a little bit, maybe.
2: Resource data reporter Alexandra canick looked at the votes for Clinton and Trump in those counties in the three-state region that produce the most coal. Uh, they had two, three, sometimes even six times the amount of support for Trump. Trump seized on coal's decline and pinned the blame on federal regulation. West Virginia University history professor Hal Gorby says that fits a long pattern in regional politics.
3: What was called the overreach of the EPA. It's often also uh, referred to as the war on coal. Uh, That language has had a lot of support obviously before Trump was running to be president.
2: The war on coal is still politically potent, but it does not match well with facts. Executives at electric utilities say their move away from coal has more to do with economics than environmental regulation. Natural gas is just cheaper. Trump supporters also want manufacturing jobs to return. That's something Trump voters Martin Dofka and Jack Rose of Wheeling both talked about.
3: It sounds like he's going to try to bring jobs back into this country.
2: You know, we've seen
3: all these jobs that have been um, exported and outsourced
2: to China and Mexico and Canada and, you know, wherever, anywhere but here. While free trade has helped consumers and some companies, the Ohio Valley's heavy manufacturing base suffered. Many manufacturing and mining communities fell into economic distress. Resource reporter Canick's analysis shows several counties with the worst poverty also had the greatest turnout for Trump.
1: Martin County, which has really high poverty, some of the highest in Kentucky, saw nearly 10 times as many voters uh, coming out in support of Trump. In fact, no county in our region with poverty greater than 30 percent went blue.
2: The Appalachian Regional Commission says 54 counties in the region are economically distressed. All but one, Athens County, Ohio, went for Trump. Democratic positions on taxes and government services traditionally favor folks with low incomes. But Professor Gorby says it's not that simple. Democrats, he says, long ago drifted from a platform that appealed to many working people.
3: And this has left, and I think this is what we saw in this election cycle, it's left a lot of these people who live in the Rust Belt, who live in rural places like Appalachia,
2: feeling that they have just been neglected. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Jeff Young in Louisville.
0: The Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from The Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. You're listening to Mountain Talk Monday and Kelly Haywood, your host, am here in the studio with Carrie Mullins, the author of Night Garden, which is her first novel, it, in a very plain and and real way, deals with the issue of drug addiction in the mountains and brings a real humanity to it that I think is necessary for us to continue the conversation about how to bring solutions here. I want to ask again about the teacher the cousin of the Owens family, and how Marie gets involved with the family. That seems like a pretty extreme case. How did you choose that character, Miss Anglin?
1: That's a good question. I've never really thought about why. I just knew that Marie needed some sort of entree into this family and I knew it would have to be somebody that she would have had to have interacted with right and this is somebody that she did like and she and her her brother hung out with her quite a bit so this is not a very good answer but I I think I just needed that connection and I thought that that would work because she would have those interactions with Marie
0: yeah it Definitely needs a way in. And what I like about the character is that she just doesn't abruptly end. You take her through the whole story. You take her to her own end as well. So even though she is, I guess, what we would call a minor character, she has a whole plot of her own (laughs) in this story. So I think in choosing an extreme case like that, if it hadn't played out all the way through the novel, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have been as believable.
1: Good. I'm glad you found her believable. <laughs> yeah, she
0: is definitely believable.
1: And she is a character. She's not somebody you would come across every day, for sure.
0: When Marie meets the is I can definitely see myself up on many strip jobs with a bonfire and a party <laughs> as a kid. <laughs>
1: That's pretty universal. I have found that
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be the case. Hey, another thing that I wanted to ask about for the character of Marie is she does dabble in drugs as so many teenagers do. I hear people all the time say that they're shocked when the studies come back about how many teenagers actually do dabble in drugs or at least try certain drugs and I'm wondering Marie doesn't Go completely into addiction. She makes several good choices actually throughout the novel but that one Having her experience it also very sober was something really striking to me as well and thinking about families who are also dealing with this sober. She is with Bobo, and they're living together. His drug abuse gets worse as the novel progresses, and there are some really striking scenes where she really holds it together. Can you talk a little bit maybe about how
1: Marie matures? through the novel I guess it's kind of a trial by fire and I think if you're around that many people who are not taking care of themselves and maybe also alternatively kind of a threat to you I think you have to at some point I guess it's also a self-preservation too is to kind of keep it together and stay above the mess I guess And I think she does mature. I think she has to through the course of what happens in the novel.
0: She has to grow up really fast in a lot of ways. There's several scenes. I don't want to give them away. But how she holds herself together and keeps her head. And then it's almost like at the same time she deals with it, but she doesn't. It's like she pushes it aside and decides to focus on something more her age, Mm -hmm. someone her age would focus on. Another thing is there are some anchoring characters in this book. There's three brothers. Bobo has two brothers there. I guess they're like stair steps. Mm -hmm. One of them has a kind girlfriend. She may not be exactly the type of person that Marie is used to, but... I see their relationship almost develop like a mother-daughter kind of situation there. How important do you think those kind of anchoring in-between worlds kind of characters are in stories like this?
1: I think you're talking about Crystal. Yes. Who is one of my favorite people in the novel. One of my favorite characters. I think of them as real people, but... I think she is super important, and I think she's one of the reasons that Marie can actually keep it together and actually gets through, is able to hold on and make it through the novel. And at the same time, I think Bobo has another sister named Nikki, who I also is one of my favorites, who is not as nurturing as Crystal and doesn't really take on that mothering role, but at the same time as a protector and a watcher and a a seer for the family. So, those are two of my favorite characters in the book, and I, I think they're really important to the whole story.
0: I see them, too, both as anchoring characters. I had a little bit of a hard time watching Nikki through the novel. I felt like she was on the verge of something different. But, also... I really like her role because I've talked with a lot of, especially the female authors who I've interviewed over the course of my year being here, about our culture having an underlying matriarchal culture. Whereas that might not be what we show outwardly, but that's the experience in the family life is that it's really based on the mother, the grandmother, And that providing and protecting the family regardless. So, because Bobo chose Marie, even though Nikki doesn't seem to approve, she's going to take care of her when it comes down to necessity. Yeah. They call us clannish, you know, or whatever, (laughs) but, you know, that family loyalty
1: Mm -hmm. that
0: we all have. Mm -hmm. I wonder, too, now that I'm thinking about it, if family loyalty might be some of the reason that this problem hasn't been addressed
1: i think that may be yeah it's hard to talk about because it feels like you're talking bad about somebody you love right if you're saying they're an addict or you're you know seeking some sort of help for them i think that is i think that is part of the problem i'm sure it is actually
0: Yeah, and almost like you're, what we would say, ratting them out. It can be dealt with within the family, Mm -hmm. but really a problem like that cannot. Yeah. In most cases, I think in some wonderful cases, maybe so, but I think those are few that we don't need extra resources.
1: I think so, too. And support. You've mentioned the matriarchal makeup of our families here and you've mentioned Harriet Arno, so I, I just have to give a shout out to my grandma Hattie who loved Harriet Arno's book uh, The Hunter's Horn oh. she said it was the best book in the English language she was a huge reader and so that's really interesting that you're mentioning both of those things that just brought that up to me i
0: other than The Dollmaker in Herbie's movie, that's the other book that she talks the most about. Yeah. Actually, I think she talks more about it than she does The Dollmaker. So I think it really affected her in a different way.
1: Oh, it did my grandma. She absolutely, she would argue with anybody that that was the best book she <laughs> uh, ever written.
0: I want to talk a little bit before we run out of time about the process of writing and how you came to be a writer. Is this your only profession? How long have you seen yourself as someone who writes?
1: Like a lot of writers, I've always written. I've always been compelled to do it. I feel weird when I'm not doing it. I feel really strange and out of sorts. It kinda started too when I went to college. I went to University of Kentucky and I took Gurney Norman's fiction classes. And that really opened a lot of doors in my brain, not, you know, just, uh, it really, he's a wonderful teacher, and it really gave me a lot of confidence to take that class and and hear what he had to say, and so that was a real awakening for me as a writer. I've always written, for the past 10 years or so, I've gone to the Appalachian Writers Workshop in Heinemann at the Heinemann Settlement School. And I found a great community of writers there, which has been wonderful. Unfortunately, I have, a, I have to have a day job, so <laughs> I do have to do work for a living. It's something that I've always done and I have always felt compelled to do.
0: I think most writers do have to <laughs> work for a living. I know I have to. <laughs> and I think that's been true historically, too writing as an art form just doesn't seem to take off even as important as it is a a visual artist someone can look at their painting in 10 minutes and be like okay this is great whereas Mm -hmm. to read a novel it takes up to a few weeks of commitment to that one artist and that one vision and that one story so we really are asking a lot of people to say here read this (laughs) and I have to say that now that I'm really glad that I'm seeing the voice of what I consider my generation start to come forward in Appalachian literature and I do think your book is going to be one of the pivotal ones that show a shift into a more modern and contemporary Appalachia I really appreciate the fact that you wrote it I have to say, too, that I'm nervous about what all will come out about us because not, I mean, admittedly so, not everything that we're going through right now is good. There are deep reasons for it. I just wanted to say that this book is important because it is. The imagery is so real. The characters are believable. And I don't think you take any liberties, whereas you couldn't place it somewhere. You know, you couldn't check it somewhere. I don't see anything there that I would say, well, you know, I don't know. So let's talk about how do you make something real, even when it may not be a lived experience.
1: Well, thank you for those comments. I really appreciate that. I take it really seriously, and I don't want to trivialize it, and I don't want to make anybody a, I don't want any caricatures in anything I write, and I think that's where you have to start to answer your question, is to make the people multidimensional, make them real. I think that's where you have to start, and that's what I tried to do with all the characters in my book, because I think if you make them real, then you can't You can't come from it from our perspective and say, you've you've hurt me because you haven't represented us correctly. You know, you haven't represented my county or my region. And also at the same time, people from outside can't say, oh, well, this is what the problem is. It's easy to look at and easy to answer because it's not, because these are real people. So that's what I was attempting to do.
0: I think it comes across very clearly that these are very complex issues and that there's no one person dependent on within a, a group of people, just as there's no one thing that we can blame it on here. Yeah. People want to blame it on pharmaceutical companies and the government and you name it, you know, they're placing blame there. But it's, it's a combination of so many things, as will be the solution, I think.
1: I think you're right. I really hope that this at least starts some dialogue or starts some people talking. I don't think I have any answers, but it is sure something I have thought about and want to try to figure out.
0: How long did it take you to write the novel?
1: Uh, It took about 10 years. long time. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So I think we've been dealing with this issue in a more open way for about 20 years, so you've been seeing it through for a while which you can tell that it's a deeply understood situation you talked about the support of your writing community how integral is that to finding
1: success as a rider? it is very important because when you're riding, you're it is such a solitary endeavor Nobody else can help you do it, really, on one level. But to be able to, to bounce your ideas off of and your your work, you know, what you're working on, off of your people that you trust and people who maybe even are working on the same kind of stuff that you're working on, is so important. I can't really say that I would be here if I didn't if I hadn't had that community. I had a great writers group in Berea of women who are very different who are so helpful, and then of course the people that I knew from the writer's workshop at Hyman were really, really, throughout those ten years, super helpful too.
0: Do you have any other publications?
1: I have some short stories that have been published in different journals.
0: Are they still distinctly Appalachian, your short stories as well?
1: Yeah, I would Set say by- so, definitely. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I think back to Gurney Norman. I got to take a workshop with him. Just sitting there in the workshop, it was very free flow, but being in the presence of someone who's accomplished what he's accomplished has a way of inspiring, regardless of what happens there. And I have been to Hyman one time, and I found it also the same. Mm-hmm. I was very productive while I was there. Mm-hmm. And I do notice that I tend to be more productive when I am around more writers. One of the reasons I like interviewing as <laughs> so, As far as the publication process, do you have an agent? Is that important? I hear people saying that either they publish their first novel and then get an agent, or they get an agent to publish their first novel. How does that whole process
1: work? Well, how it worked for me is... My book has been published by a really small press in Lexington, Kentucky. It's called Old Cove Press. It's Naoka Hawkins and her husband, Gurney Norman, so that's kind of that connection. They had put out quite a few books of poetry. If you know of Frank X. Walker, they did a, uh, quite a few of his early works, and they put out one of Gurney's earlier works that had been... I think they recorded it here. Ancient Creek. Ancient Creek, Creek that's yeah. right, and then they put it in written form. Oak Cove did, so... I didn't have an agent, and like I said, it's just a very small press, small but excellent press out of Lexington, so it's local. So my experience has been, you know, different than somebody who has an agent, has a New York publisher and that kind of thing. It makes me really happy to be with a local small press, I think there's a lot of advantages to that. They have a great website, so they've done a lot of that, and they've really they've helped me find different places to go to and they've definitely set me up with some great readings in Lexington, but I think it's pretty universal anymore that as an author you have to hustle and you have to figure out what your audience is and how to reach them. So I think that goes whether you're with a small press or even if you're with a large press, you've got to figure those two things out. I don't know that I've done a great job at that, but I've I've tried. We've had quite a few events, and we just went to the uh, Kentucky Book Fair last week. That was really fun, really awesome.
0: I've never been. Is it just a room full of Kentucky authors and their books? That's exactly what it is. And publishers? Yeah.
1: And they have some great panels and great readings all through the day, music, things like that. But it's a great event. I've gone for a lot of years, and it was fun to be uh, sitting behind a table this time. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: Yeah, one of the things the other author I was talking about that had gone with the small press was Willie Dalton, and she did say that at some of these events that she's also been to with her book, that she asked some of the ones who were with bigger publishers if their experience was similar to hers, and they said yes. (laughs) You have you you do.
1: You just have to figure out who might be interested in your book and how to reach them. Mm -hmm. And
0: that's just going to be the landscape anymore.
1: I think it is. I think so many creative industries have changed in that way. You know, I think the music industry has really changed in in some of the same ways, and definitely the book industry has changed.
0: I would like for our final bit of conversation to talk specifically about Appalachian literature. Do you see Appalachian literature as part of Southern literature, or is it its own subgenre of American literature and how important to our American story do you see it as being?
1: Oh, I think it's really important. I think some of the best authors, best American authors going have been Appalachian writers. I don't know that it's a sub... I think it's on its own. I don't even think of it as a subgenre of southern literature. I think it's its own interesting and varied and strange bird really. And some of my favorite ones are the wild ones like Lee Maynard and people who've really tried to break the mold and talk about different things and put different stories out there. And, of course, Gurney and Harriet Arno. They're such a great tradition of storytelling, and I just uh, I love it. I hope that I'm considered part of it. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that there's no doubt that that is the case and will continue to be the case, especially with what I see as the importance of this book. Speaking of that, who else of this generation coming up of writers do you see as being pretty important? What other names would you, and books maybe?
1: Yeah, absolutely, uh, Robert Guype and Trampoline. It's a very important book, and I'm really looking forward to the rest of his series. He's working on the second one now gosh, there's so many. You mentioned David Joy. I think he's he's great. Crystal Wilkinson, Birds of Opulence. I think that's such an incredible novel. I loved it so much. There's so much good stuff coming out right now that has come out in the past couple years.
0: I agree that as far as contemporary works go, it seems like those are the names that I hear quite often. And I haven't read Trampoline yet, and I'm working on David Joy's piece now. I haven't read Birds of Opulence yet. I interviewed Crystal. She, I think, was the first author that I interviewed. Oh, really? When I came to work here, and it's so fun to talk to her. Oh, yeah. And, um, Absolutely. I love Blackberry's Blackberries.
1: Yeah, that's um, a favorite Water Street, yeah.
0: Yeah, that is a tremendous book, so I'm looking really forward. She read some segments on the show. It was pretty amazing.
1: Miss <music> Anglin set up the lines of oxy for them on her coffee table. This stuff's been messing me up, she said. She handed Marie a straw and told her to go first, so Marie did. Then she laid back on Miss Anglin's carpet, seeing trees and forest all around, summer trees that were green and hopeful. See what I mean, Miss Anglin said. See? Marie felt her take the straw from her hand, heard her suck up the second line. She could hear Miss Anglin breathing across the room. She could hear the freezer making ice in the kitchen. She could hear even though she couldn't see anything, but the trees that had grown in Miss Anglin's living room. Marie couldn't say anything for all those trees. She wasn't able to open her mouth. The next thing Marie knew, they were in the car, Miss Anglin careening one lane to another, but who cared? She could drive with her elbows, it wouldn't matter, they'd get there. It was inevitable. The party by the fire and the car were moving toward each other, across time and space. They would meet and everyone would be together, and Marie would be there too. Everything made Marie laugh, Miss Anglin's car window that wouldn't roll down the whiny man on the CD player singing and playing guitar. And finally the car and the party did meet, in space and time, and the car stopped. Marie felt herself glide out of the car, around the mud pit, and down the road to the party. Marie wanted to talk to everyone there. She had something to say, even to people she had never seen before. She asked the older Owens' uncles about the beer they were drinking, and they gave her one. She talked to Nikki Owens, Miss Anglin's cousin, she couldn't make herself talk to when she was straight because Nikki was too cool. Nikki had on a bikini top with a leather vest over it and jeans. Marie told her she had cool clothes. You're way messed up, Nikki said, and Marie smiled and moved on. Everyone at the party was talking about Bobo, the older Owen's brother who'd been off working in Indiana. Everybody there talked about him like he was a superstar. He was coming home in a couple weeks, then they'd really party. Marie felt taller, and she liked the way she felt when she walked, like her joints were jangling, like she was tall and limber, moving easy over the ground. And it felt like everyone noticed her and wanted to talk to her as much as she wanted to talk to them. Everything was happening for a reason, and she knew what the reason was, even if she couldn't say it out loud. I think that's a
0: really good segment. Going back to she knew why things were happening, they would get there because they just would, all that. in those situations, it's not over till it is. That's how we get into the the odd and sometimes terrible situations that we find ourselves in. Well, I thank you for reading that for us. Mm -hmm. And you have a website that folks could see.
1: I do. It's Carrie Mullins Writer. I need to update it, and I'm going to (laughs) very soon. But I try to keep everything on there.
0: Is it a .com? .com, yeah. Awesome. And so you can get up with Carrie there. Do you have a Facebook?
1: Oh, yeah, I have Facebook, too. It's just Carrie Mullins.
0: The book can be found, I'm sure, across Kentucky several other locations as well as online Mm -hmm. and I think you can get it directly from Old Cove Mm -hmm. at oldcove.com and we'll have all the links to places that you can purchase the book when we put this interview on our website and up as a podcast. Carrie, I would like to thank you for driving all this way (laughs) and being a guest on Mountain Talk Monday. We've been talking with Carrie Mullins, the author of Night Garden, a wonderful debut novel of contemporary Appalachian culture and issues. So, to all the listeners out there, I've been your host, Kelly Haywood, and I want to thank you for listening. Thanks, Carrie.
1: Thank you, Kelly.
0: If you or a loved one has been or is currently a user of heroin, please listen closely. You may have become aware through news reports over the last months that the number of overdoses from heroin in the area are on the rise, and many are proving fatal. This is due to the drug being cut with potent synthetic chemicals. You may use your normal amount of heroin, or even a smaller amount, and still suffer from an overdose. Van Ingram, the director of Kentucky's Office of Drug Control Policy, explains what makes dosing unreliable.
3: The heroin that we see in Kentucky is not from Afghanistan or that region. It's from below south of the border. The heroin, of course, is an agricultural product. It comes from a poppy, something that you have to grow. Well, the cartels have realized, well, you know, we can move away from an agricultural product that requires labor, that's dependent on weather. That's dependent on time it takes to grow it. We could move away from that. We could buy chemicals from China and produce our own synthetic opioids. So fentanyl is often an end of life drug, but it's a very strong painkiller. So you could take a little bit of heroin and a little bit of fentanyl, mix it together. The user is going to get that euphoric effect, but because fentanyl is 30 to 50 times more powerful than heroin, it takes just very little to get there. In 2014. We saw fentanyl involved in 121 overdose deaths. Last year, fentanyl was present in the bloodstream of 420. If that dealer doesn't get that mix just right, it's going to be a fatal overdose situation. This is going to be the new norm. Cartels are going to stick with this business model, move further away from heroin, and more into these synthetic drugs.
1: But I feel like we have an obligation to warn
3: people the heroin you think you're buying may not be heroin.
0: From all of us at WMMT, please be careful and spread the word. To find help for addiction, you can call the Narcotics Anonymous hotline at 1-855-319-8869 or the Drug and Alcohol Helpline at 1-800-432-9397. Visit www.wmmt.org for a list of local resources. This has been a public service announcement of your community radio station, 88.7 WMMT.